Hello, I'm Scott Winnell, and this is TW Now. The practice of infant baptism, or baptizing babies, has been a common practice in some Christian denominations for centuries. Priests sprinkle holy water on infants in part as ritual, and in part to protect their souls from hellfire should they die an untimely death. But is this ancient practice necessary? Although it is sincerely done in the name of God, is this a practice we see outlined in the Holy Bible? And more importantly, is this a practice Jesus Christ would condone? Is it a practice that He actually practiced Himself? These powerful questions need truthful biblical answers, and our two returning guests today have some answers I think you will find very helpful. I'd like to welcome back Mr. Ken Frank. Mr. Frank is a longtime minister and field pastor. He's also a theology professor. Mr. Peter Nathan is a longtime minister and pastor. He has also been a theology professor for many years as well, and he is joining us by Skype from England. Gentlemen, welcome back. It's wonderful to have you with us today. And let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Actually, before we do that, let me just invite our audience. If you have questions today, please go ahead and message us, and we'll try and do our best to get to those. Also, please feel free to subscribe, to like, or to share today's program as well. All right, Mr. Nathan, let's go ahead and start with you. Let's, let's just go back to the origins of infant baptism. Where and when did the practice of infant baptism begin? Well, Scott, it's an interesting question. In terms of history, the very first reference we have to the practice is in the late second century. Uh, Tertullian, one of the church fathers, was condemning the idea. So apparently, even by Tertullian's time, it had become a practice in certain areas. Uh, so we're really a century after the apostles, uh, into a different world, a world which was really affected by philosophy rather than the Bible. So this is a long time ago, uh, very early into uh, the centuries AD, but still, as you point out, quite a while after the death of Christ. Mr. Fain. Exactly. Go ahead. I have with me a textbook, which is a standard text in uh, seminaries and Bible schools. In fact, I've taught from it uh, myself uh, for a class on history of Christianity. And here's what uh, Justo Gonzalez says on uh, volume one, page uh, 113. To this day, scholars are not in agreement as to whether the early church baptized infants. By the late second or third century, there are texts indicating that at least sometimes the children of Christian parents were baptized as infants. But all earlier documents and many later ones provide such scant information that it's impossible to decide one way or the other. So it has been a very controversial issue for centuries. I think there's another interesting factor that comes from the second century because during the second century, we have the rise of a dualism, a philosophical idea based on Neoplatonism, in which the physical world was seen as being evil and the spiritual world being good, uh, very much uh, the good and the bad, uh, which was not a concept that was espoused in the Bible. But it came to really drive ideas 
in the second century. And uh, ideas we talk about today in terms of Gnosticism were very much based on those ideas. So can you make the connection then uh, between dualism and this concept, this idea of infant baptism? How, how How did infant baptism come out of or how is it attached to dualism? Well, of course, ultimately speaking, if one scrolls forward a couple of centuries more to the time of Augustine, Augustine more or less codified the idea of original sin and that sin was passed biologically through the physical act of conception and birth and hence children bore the sins of their fathers and had to be baptized to be freed of those. Because if you weren't baptized and you died early, what happens? You'd have a lake of fire. Yeah, interesting. Mr. Frank, more to add, sir. Yeah, I would add that Augustine uh, began to teach this because of an argument he was having with a, a British monk named Pelagius. And uh, again, from this textbook, Pelagius claimed that each of us comes to the world with complete freedom to sin or not sin. There's no such thing as original sin nor a corruption of human nature that forces us to sin. So what did the infant um, baptism, which goes back to original sin, uh, comes back to some of these early theological arguments. Now, is is original sin a concept that is only in the Catholic Church, that we find only in the the Roman Catholic Church? Uh, No, it is very much part of the thinking of Protestant churches as well. Uh, Interestingly, the Eastern, Eastern Orthodox churches have quite a different view of original sin than the Catholic Church. So in many ways, it's a Western uh, Christendom problem rather than a universal problem. Okay, very interesting. Uh, it's not part of thinking of Judaism or Islam, original sin isn't. Hmm. Right. Are there scriptures in the Bible where, uh, are that are used to try and substantiate this doctrine of infant baptism? Do we see infant baptism in the scripture? Uh, the, the Bible... The Bible is very silent on it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But I think what happens is a doctrine gets established because of uh, incorporating philosophical ideas, and then people who are more sensitive to the Bible try and go back to find justifications for it in the Bible. I guess a related question to this is when we look back at people like Tortillian and Augustine, much of Christianity today refers to these individuals as the early church fathers uh, and and places a lot of weight on what they have to say or had to say. How do these early church fathers relate to the Bible itself? If, if I could answer, make a comment on that, Augustine was really influenced by philosophy rather than the Bible. Uh, his ideas of biblical sin, his biblical basis for his ideas of biblical sin, uh, of original sin, excuse me, was based on a very poor translation of uh, the Romans chapter 5. Uh, he did not read Greek and he relied on Latin translations and uh, basically created uh, a doctrine based on inaccurate translations. 
Hmm. From what I've read in regards to infant baptism, they try to make a correspondence between circumcision, which in the Hebraic faith was performed on the eighth day for a boy, of course, and baptism, because they consider that the time when that baby was now part of the covenant community. Mm. Um, and so baptism, which in Colossians seems to be connected by the Apostle Paul with circumcision, was part of the scriptural authority that they used for bringing in this doctrine. Okay. But there's much more that Paul taught as well, which doesn't support that at all. Mm. <clears throat> okay. Well, let's move on a little bit, and we can come back to some of these concepts if we need to. What are, what are some of the biblical purposes for baptism? We've got this concept of inf infant baptism that's talked about, happens very early after an infant is born. Uh, what does the Bible have to say about baptism itself? And, and what, why did God intend baptism to happen? What does the act of baptism, the, the doctrine of baptism, represent? Because I think that's an important thing to keep in mind as we discuss infant baptism. Mr. Frank, some thoughts? Yeah, the actual practice of total immersion was not new with John the Baptist. Uh, they had come out of the Hebraic faith where uh, little uh, these uh, <laughs> ceremonies were conducted uh, for washing before going into the temple into a pool of water called a mikveh. And it was to represent spiritual cleansing. So John the Baptist came along uh, implementing this uh, practice into his teaching, calling upon people to repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was setting the stage for the coming of the Messiah. Mm -hmm. So the, the baptism does go back that far as far as a ceremony. Okay. Uh, interestingly, if you go to the end of Matthew's gospel, the concept of baptism comes as a result of a person being discipled or becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Uh, a baby cannot become a disciple. A baby at that point in time is totally dependent upon its parents and uh, those who care for it. Uh, so the aspect of being discipled, uh, Peter explains that a little more in the book of Acts chapter two on the day of Pentecost where he told the people to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. So the aspect of repentance and the remission of sins uh, becomes essential in terms of baptism. And that requires a, uh, a mature mind to be able to make that decision. Well, the proponents of uh, infant baptism speak of how, and even some of these early church fathers, they speak to how if a child is too small to, to repent or to consent, that the parents or the guardians can give consent on behalf of the child. Uh, do we see any evidence of that in the scripture? Not that I know of. It's well-intentioned. I think the, the parents, of course, are concerned. They want to protect their child from original sin and uh, if the child is too young, then they would speak up for the, their behalf. But it's, it's misguided based on the scriptures themselves. And uh, we're not the only Christian group that does not practice infant baptism. There are many others. Okay. Uh, of course, baptism goes on to picture a burying of the self. The dying of the self 
and the desire to live a new life through repentance uh, in Jesus Christ. So uh, there is a very, very conscious decision that has to be made in terms of being baptized. Okay. That's right. I want to come back to a comment or a conversation we had a couple of minutes ago. This idea of original sin, passing on the sins of the parents to the child through sexual intercourse, as you pointed out. Um, is that scriptural? Do, does God tell us in the Bible that the sins of the parents, or doesn't he tell us that the sins of the parents are going to be laid on the children to the third and fourth generation? Uh, there is an element whereby children bear the consequences of parents' folly. For instance, if a parent is an alcoholic, we well know the influences or the impact of that on the children and maybe the children's children. So parents can make decisions that shape the lives of a child. But God does not hold a child responsible for its parents' sin. And if one were to go to Ezekiel chapter 18, uh, Ezekiel sets out the case very clearly that a child is not responsible for its parents' sin. Even in the Ten Commandments, uh, God is uh, describing himself as a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. But it adds this accompanying phrase, third and fourth, fourth generation of children of those who hate me. That's a willful decision. So yes, they may endure consequences of their parents' uh, sins and mistakes, but when it comes to eternal judgment, uh, we all have to make that choice individually. And so the bad example set by the parents might be conveyed to the second, third, fourth generation, but they still have to live by that, uh, make a decision themselves in their relationship to God. Hmm. Well, this reminds me of the directive that we're to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Right. Exactly. Uh, somebody else yes. can't do that for us. <clears throat> yes. What other important Bible keys are there to understanding baptism itself and the, the fact that we probably should not be, or not probably, should not be baptizing infants. What other keys are there that we need to think about? Mr. Frank? Yeah, I think uh, Paul explains it very well in Romans that when we are baptized, we are baptized into Jesus' death. Again, we have to willfully choose to die to ourselves. And a child doesn't have that comprehension of personal guilt and sinfulness. Not to that level yet. That, that develops later in the, the human psyche. And then he talks about walking, coming out of the water in newness of life. It has to be a full transformation. Uh, many churches baptized children when they, were, uh, when they were early teens. In fact, I was baptized by a Baptist church when I was 12. And we went through Bible lessons, but I didn't understand to the depth of my that I needed just what was required of this commitment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's true for many people who went through that kind of an experience. Uh, and another interesting key to add to that would be the fact that the biblical example given to us of Jesus Christ was that he was baptized at 30 years of age or about 30 years of age. 
So clearly, infant baptism wasn't a issue in terms of Jesus Christ. He was a mature adult about to go forth and be a leader in his community and so on from there. So we find it is adults who are clearly uh, baptized throughout the New Testament. Well, should we, with that example of Jesus Christ, should we use 30 years of age as the benchmark for the age of baptism? Or is there another way to look at it? That age of 30 was for Jesus to begin his ministry. So when he was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon him, anointing him for the work as Messiah. So it's a little bit different than for the average person. Mm -hmm. Mr. Nathan, you were mentioning earlier in our conversation something that might be helpful. Yes. Well, we have the situation in terms of Israel when it came out of Egypt and the parents rebelled against the eternal and the eternal condemned them to die in the wilderness in the 40 years of wandering. And only the children who were under the age of 20 or 20 years or under were permitted to enter the promised land. So here clearly was an age at which the eternal made a difference between making uh, proper decisions over the age of 20 and not requiring people to make those decisions under the age of 20 and so on. So obviously various societies differ in terms of how people mature and what is required in terms of mature. But there is a biblical example uh, setting an age where God required accountability mm. as to those under it not being held accountable. When we read the Gospels, we find that the disciples, uh, the apostles brought children to Jesus for him to lay his hands on them and bless them. But he did not baptize them because he realized they were not at that point yet of understanding what discipleship would require. Mm. And yet mm -hmm. he did want to convey God's blessing to those children, to watch over them, to uh, protect them, and to uh, have God's blessing over the parents to teach them the right way. Yeah. Here's ac actually a related question to that. Uh, it says, would 1 Corinthians 7.14, which I believe is the children being sanctified by the believing parents, um, mm -hmm. would 1 Corinthians 7.14 allow for unbaptized children to be saved? For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. Can, can I just back up a moment uh, to where we were discussing before? Certainly. Uh, please, Dr. Scott. It's interesting, we talk about infant baptism, but infant baptism is an oxymoron. It doesn't really exist because infant baptism is not infant immersion, it is infant christening. And when the Bible talks of baptism, it talks of people being immersed fully in water in an act of burial. And infant baptism does not follow that pattern at all. In fact, it should not be called infant baptism to begin with. Uh, because it, it's a denial of, of that very fact. And I think that's one of the things we have to recognize in terms of uh, this idea as well.
Maybe we could talk about that a little bit further. You could tease that out a little bit further with baptism and burial. What, what was God trying to get across? Why baptism and burial? It had to do with dying to oneself, recognizing that we were willfully disobedient to the Almighty and that we needed to lay down our lives to die to ourselves, to come out in newness of life, to serve Him as new people. Uh, now motivated by the Holy Spirit, which follows laying on of hands by the examples in the book of Acts, and then um, following baptism and then receiving the Holy Spirit that would then motivate that person to live a Christian standard. And in the New Testament then, r rather than the law beaten, being written on tablets of stone, uh, we're taught that it's written on the heart. So the motivation for obedience comes from within. If I can add to that as well, because this is really what the Bible speaks of in terms of uh, sin, as opposed to original sin that infant baptism is involved with. Uh, infant baptism looks on sin as being biological. The Bible, on the other hand, looks on humanity as being taken captive by the God of this world. And baptism requires repentance, which is a desire to change and not be subject to the God of this world, but rather to be subject to the law of God and live a new life in Christ Jesus, as Mr. Franks was saying. And so that, that, that what he was saying is very, very important in terms of understanding what the Bible really does talk about in terms of original sin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a classic verse from our New Testament in the King James is, sin is the transgression of the law, 1 John 3, 4. It is an actual committal of an act that is contrary to the law of God. And uh, children may be breaking those commandments, but they don't have an understanding of the consequences. Mm -hmm. They're not adult enough yet to understand how do I overcome this? That's why it has to be an adult-sized decision. Mm -hmm. Mr. Nathan, if you would clarify quickly for us, you mentioned how infant baptism really doesn't exist because it has to do with sprinkling, with christening. It's not really baptism. Maybe you could even define for us the word that's used in the New Testament, the inspired word of God uh, yes. that refers to baptism. Well, our word baptism comes from a Greek term baptizo, which means to be immersed in water. And it's not just a matter of sprinkling of water or turning a fire hose on somebody to get them wet. It is, in fact, the idea of burial in water. I think, is it John 3 that talks about how John the Baptist was baptizing in the Jordan River because there was much water? Much water there. Mm -hmm. yes, Contrary to exactly. the image that we all see um, of him standing in the water up to his kneecaps yeah. and sprinkling Jesus yeah. Christ with the right. water. Yeah, right. Okay. Exactly. Let me come back to the question we had a minute ago. It's, it's somewhat related. Uh, would 1 Corinthians 7.14 allow unbaptized children to be saved? Uh, being sanctified by the believing parents. I have that well, verse in front of me. Um, and it, it does talk about uh, sanctifying children, and sanctify means to set apart. In other words, that God had a special interest in that child. And the situation that Paul is dealing with is where 
one of the mates that produced that child is a converted Christian, the other one is not. Mm -hmm. And so that the sanctification comes upon that child because of the association with the parent that is a converted Christian. So that the um, children would be considered holy as opposed to unclean, which in this context seems to be the opposite of sanctified. So the children were holy or set apart for God's special interest. Okay. But there's not a mention there about baptism mm -hmm. or even original sin for that matter. Of, or being saved? Nor saved, right. Nor saved, and that, that's, right. A, that's, that's a point, right. sanctification. Sanctification okay. does not equal salvation. That's okay. right. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for so that in clarification. So Jew, in Jewish society, a sanctified children would be able to go into the temple, provided it underwent the various rules of, uh, abided by the various rules of purity, etc. So if it touched a dead body, it would have to go through uh, mikvah and so forth. But it would be enabled to go into the temple. An unsanctified child would not be allowed near the temple. Okay. I'm going to ask you another question that's related to our other keys that are important to understand baptism and why there is no infant baptism in the scripture. And I'm going to actually ask a, get at it from a question we pulled up on Facebook here that was sent to us. It says, what does the Church of God, I would add, what does the Bible teach regarding children falling asleep, dying, before they are able to be baptized? Are, are they lost? Or what's, what's the truth there? Uh, that's a wonderful question to answer uh, because it involves the resurrections and the fact that there is a resurrection to life at which a child will then be able to grow and develop and make adult decisions, make decisions about the way of life it's going to live and live accordingly. Uh, if one looks at Catholic doctrine, uh, when one dies, one either goes to heaven or hell and somehow we've got to make sure that most people get out of hell into heaven with as easy a pass as possible. And infant baptism is sort of part of a justification for getting the child out of hell into heaven. Hmm. And the Bible doesn't talk in such terms. So in other words, you create one wrong doctrine, now you've got to create other wrong doctrines to justify mm -hmm. the position you've already taken. And if one understands the resurrections, there is no need for a child to uh, be baptized or somehow saved because it has died or about to die. Uh, we understand it's going to live again. It will live as a physical being again without the uh, health problems or the starvation or whatever it was, the disease that has caused its untimely death. And it will be able to live before God and follow his way of life and make the decisions that Mr. Franks was talking about. We know from the New Testament, God is not willing that any should perish. So therefore, God has an interest in every one of us, every person who has ever lived. And therefore, he was, would be eminently fair with a child who has died prematurely. And as uh, Mr. Nathan was uh, explaining to us, it has to do with what Revelation 20 describes as a series of resurrections. 
Uh, each person in his own order, as the Apostle Paul uh, clarifies. In other words, there's a time in the future when those children would be given life again and have a chance to mature and make that uh, important decision. Okay. Well, gentlemen, we are winding down. We're running out of time. I think we've had a good, good opportunity to have a conversation about this topic. You've, dealt, you've delved into it quite deeply. Let me ask you this as we conclude here. What are some key points? What is a key point, a key takeaway point that you would like to leave our audience with today? Mr. Frank? Yeah, baptism is a life-transforming experience that needs to be taken seriously, requiring adult reflection and self-examination that leads to a transformation where a person is a new person, one that is fully a Christian who walks with Christ thereafter. Okay. Mr. Nathan. Thank you very much, Dr. Bernal. Infant baptism by itself seems to be such an insignificant uh, concept. It doesn't seem to be the matter which we have to spend time on TW Now or TV discussing. Um, even devout Catholics are pretty lax about infant baptisms these days. But it's an interesting consideration because from my perspective and the way I have studied it and, and read it in the past, the idea is uh, contains the major problem of how our societies have created religions to suit themselves. Based on the use of philosophy rather than the use of a Bible. And uh, the uh, use of a Bible is ultimately only used for, you might say, trying to sugarcoat something that had totally different origins and a basis. So this is an interesting study in the way in which philosophy rather than the Bible shapes the religions of the world today. And I think you have a copy there of the uh, original Christianity booklet that Dr. Meredith wrote. Very important concept to have in mind as to just how different the thinking was of people in the first century from the second century and even more so from today. Mm. Yeah, it seems like that time from Christ's death, the, the, the end of John, the, um, or excuse me, yes, John, the Apostle John's life, until into the second century was a time of major change in the church, doctrinally speaking. And so we really would encourage you uh, to visit our tomorrowsworld.org website and check out the booklet that we have, uh, Restoring Original Christianity. It will take you back into that time and give you a lot more detail. Gentlemen, thank you again for being on the program today. Mr. Nathan, <coughs> Good evening to you. It's, it's good to have you on the program tonight. We're glad you could both join, and thank you for taking the time with us. Infant baptism is an ancient practice. It's carried out because of tradition and a desire to protect babies from eternal damnation in the case of death before they have the maturity to commit their lives to God. But when we understand baptism is a commitment to God's way of life and that it involves repenting of past sins, walking in newness of life, and burying the old sinful person in a watery grave, 
We come to understand that baptism is not a commitment or an action that little children or infants can realistically take. In fact, this is an idea that is undergirded by the teaching of original sin, another biblically flawed doctrine. Children are not born to damnation because of the sin of Adam. They become sinful beings of their own accord as they grow up and develop. They then need to work out their own salvation when they become old enough and mature enough to recognize their sins and choose their own spiritual path. If infants die without baptism, they are not lost. Our loving God has a plan for them and a future opportunity for them to come into full knowledge and understanding of God and His way of life. To learn more about that powerful biblical process and to learn more about why babies do not need to be baptized, be sure to check out another booklet of ours. Is this the only day of salvation? And it's also available at the tomorrowsworld.org website. To continue discovering answers to today's pressing questions, we encourage you to stay tuned to TW Now each week. Next week, we plan to examine a world-changing idea called Brexit, and then we'll discuss where it might lead. We'll see you again next week, and in the meantime, we encourage you to subscribe, like, or share today's program.